Hi, Chris Searles here. I am executive editor at allcreation.org and I am the director at biointegrity.net, which produces all creation. So I want to welcome you to our conversation on Pathways of Teshuva with eco-psychologist Pesach Hanania and special guest Marcus Carr. Dr. Hanania is a community organizer in Nevada, working to bring unions together on issues and opportunities around cleaner energy. And Mr. Carr is a youth mentor in North Minneapolis, where he's program director for Youth Farm, which is helping kids get out of the traumas of institutionalized poverty in America through urban gardening. And that is an extremely brief description of what Marcus does. He is literally saving lives with the work he does with youth. And that process has everything to do with engaging in nature and returning to a more native sense of self. Marcus's urban gardening team just won a $750,000 grant to expand and his Minneapolis Food Justice Council, which he was appointed to co-lead by the mayor of Minneapolis after a six year process, just won city council approval yesterday. And this movement, this policy change in Minneapolis will empower expansion of local food production across the region and even across the state of Minnesota. Marcus's approach to leadership is as a friend and as a builder and as a grower. He builds balanced relationships, whether it's with the kids or just as a gardener. He's working on balance and relationship because of his nature knowledge. And Pesach, the author of this breakthrough paper, he grew up as a Jewish American without a strong connection to his Judaism. And so as a PhD psychologist with a focus on how ecology and landscapes define our concept of reality, the space that we're in, as that person, he then went and explored his ancestral Jewish identity and discovered that living with a sense of sacred relationship to the other life in this giant ecosystem, the biodiversity of a given landscape or place, that that is embedded in the texts, the ancient Jewish texts and the identity of the ancient Jewish culture. And of course, cutting all the way sort of to the chase of why we're having this conversation, why it's so important, that's the culture that created the first five books of the Bible and a lot of things for Western civilization. So I'm gonna share first my sort of reading between the lines summary on Pesach's paper and ask him to respond. And then from there, we'll just talk through the many compelling points about that aspect of the paper. Here's my quick summary. In part one here, Pesach has identified the separation that occurred for Jews from nature. So in other words, I would say Pesach that we forgot and that you have made this reconnection that we forgot that the temple is a metaphor for homelands. It's the mm. place where Jews went when they could not be on their homelands, living in a sacred life. And secondarily, because the Jewish exile over 2,000 years ago was out of literally the most prolific and abundant part of the Fertile Crescent, where there was a lot of food and water and natural materials and ecological infrastructure, they were exiled from that place of abundance into the desert, a place of almost the opposite experience. And as mentioned before, Pesach's expertise is in eco-psychology. And so he's particularly aware of how that shift in literal environment that these people were in perhaps created a more adversarial relationship for practitioners of Judaism and nature. And at the same time, they were already sort of forced into a practice 
of ritualizing their Judaism into an institutionalized religion in a temple that was a metaphor for homelands. And so there is a deep, deep connection to indigeneity in the Jewish identity, the Jewish ancestral identity. And that's how I read this first uh, breakthrough piece of the paper. Pesach, can you kind of jump in and comment from there? Sure, Chris. Yeah. Um, so I probably wouldn't have phrased it exactly how you did, but I think that's really on point. I can share just a little bit of my exploration around the topic. Um, so I don't have any official formal training in, in Jewish studies, in rabbinic studies whatsoever, but about, gosh, maybe a dozen years ago, I was asked to, um, to teach 11 and 12 year olds in a synagogue again, no kind of background except for, you know, growing up Jewish. And so I learned a lot through, you know, taking on that opportunity. And over the years, for various reasons, I kept on having opportunities to teach in Jewish religious schools and, and did a lot of exploration myself, diving into texts through showing up to Jewish religious experience, which I didn't, I, I grew up with a bit. So I've just been a student. I, I've just been, you know, curious to, to learn with others and on my own. And then also about a dozen years ago, I started a graduate program in community liberation and eco-psychology. And I had the privilege to really explore a lot through that program and within the different classes that I would take in eco-psychology, in liberation psychology, a lot of my work was exploring both Jewish dynamics and connection and disconnection to land. And so that, that sort of resulted in a couple of fieldwork projects. And those are really what I explore in the paper is my trip to Israel-Palestine, which included 10 days of volunteering on Palestinian farms and really trying to, to gain a sense. I, 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 similarly to not really growing up with a whole lot of connection to Judaism, I also didn't grow up with a whole lot of connection to the land. And at about age 27, really felt that need. And so I had the opportunity to really experience permaculture farming and really tried to learn how Palestinians are using that modality as sort of a response to occupation. And then shortly after returning from that trip, the next year I was doing field work in Jewish environmental summer camps and spent about a year uh, mentoring in a Jewish rites of passage and a wilderness exploration program with an organization called Wilderness Torah. And so that's the other piece that I really explore in the paper. And so kind of the thread that I use to tie all of those together is this concept of teshuva, which oftentimes is translated as repentance, but I feel like a lot of us don't really connect to that concept, right? It's related to this idea of sin, which a lot of us might reject. And so, you know, to really dig into that, that concept, the etymology of that word teshuva, it means to return, right? And so we talk about it a lot during the Jewish high holidays in terms of returning to our spiritual essence. And so I was really looking at the practice of teshuva, the practice of, of returning and how we can apply that to our relationship to land, to our relationship 
to each other and really discovering what it could look like to take a Jewish approach and an eco-psychological approach and put them together. There's some really great work out there, but not enough. And so, you know, again, my work and my exploration was really just out of my own curiosity and my own opportunity to really put myself as an object of research and discover what would come up as I was getting in touch with both my ancestral heritage and and getting connected to the natural world. Beautiful. Yeah. Marcus, did you want to comment? Well, I can definitely relate to that journey, uh, you know, uh, because uh, I think I found a lot of the, the things I was um, looking for for myself in nature. I mean, I've always been drawn to nature. I, you know, I grew up here in Minneapolis, but I left and joined the military. And I, um, right, after, right after I turned 16, you know, I graduated early. By 17, I was in boot camp and traveling around the world and experiencing things I that I never see, you know, being on open water and going from continents and countries, you know, um, realizing that most of the boogeyman I've heard about look like me. It's pretty interesting. Um, and then um, really accept, start accepting myself because a lot of uh, um, older people that I encounter throughout my life has always installed this sense of wisdom in me um, from different cultures, different product of a lot of different people. And my father, um, actually every first son in my family has been a farmer. You know, my dad was born in West Africa. Um, they own hundreds of acres of land uh, growing rubber and fruits and sugarcane and rice and all these things. And that that knowledge is slowly dissipating for my family. I found myself here not by choice, but I realized I was really good at farming. It was my medicine. It was my escape from like this world, from, from this art society. I really kind of isolated in, on farms, trying to be around like-minded people, just kind of growing and seeing like the fruits of our labor, you know, being land stewards, you know? And I started learning about my father and his degree, agriculture, and his father, and all these things. So I, I, uh, I can relate to that journey of like you know really, everything that's happening right now comes from me, really digging inside myself. The time I spend in nature, really absorbing my own thoughts, you know, finishing my own thoughts, my own feelings, feeling my own feelings asking myself questions and trying to process what's happening to me in America. Can we come back to that in this second part? Because I, I think that's, you know, exactly right. Like um, the transformation and, and the place of to process. And get exactly. And I can definitely relate. I mean, his journey, you know, not not being someone who's intended to be an expert or anything on this stuff, but really applying his own life to this process and being a vessel and hopefully using that opportunity for people outside of his body to see the kind of quality of life or like the things they want for themselves. 
Marcus, I'm going to interrupt because this is where your expertise as a practitioner gets us where we want to go. Nice. And, and uh, I want to ask Pesach a couple more questions about the text and some specific quotes. And so Pesach, here's, here's a couple that I think really frame the significance of this, uh, this separation from nature idea of being a thing that, you know, we can absolutely say happened. So here's one of the quotes you say, as Ben Steen wrote, the spiritual sophistication of the Jewish people came to be seen embodied precisely in our ability to dispense with a homeland of soil and borders and to live instead in the world at large or in the text. And then you also say, for thousands of years, we have been taught to focus on the words that were given rather than the place mm. in which they were given. Can you talk about that a little bit, Pesach? I should pull up exactly what you're talking about so I can get the, the dates right. You know, and, and again, this is my study from scholars, from experts, and I'm really a, a layperson on these topics. And so I'm not promising to be 100% accurate. But my understanding is that up until the year 586 BCE, the experience of the ancient Israelites was surrounded around the ancient temple. And now what's left of that temple in Jerusalem is the Western wall. There's one, and it's not even a wall from the temple, but it's sort of the, the external barrier. So when that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, they sent the vast majority of Israelites into exile in you know, the larger Babylonian empire. And a lot of Judaism was, was developed during, during that period and changed a lot because those individuals no longer had access to the temple where certain secretive rites were happening, sort of uh, animal sacrifice, right? The types of practices that, that we, we no longer practice. 70 years later, the Israelites were allowed back into their ancestral homeland. They rebuilt the temple. And so for another 500 years or so, they were to some extent continuing to practice those rituals. And then the Romans destroyed the temple in the year 70 of the common era. And at that point, the rabbis no longer having access. The, the rabbis are teachers. Rabbi means teacher. And so the religion went from a practice of, of priests, of priestly rites, to a practice of teaching. So there was this focus on, on the Torah, right? We, um, in the synagogue these days, have this really amazing scroll all over the world. It's exactly the same. Scholars take great care in writing this, this scroll. And there's such an emphasis in the Jewish world of of reading both the torah which is the the five books of moses the other books of what some would consider the old testament and extensive commentary and commentary the the mishnah and gemara and all these books that the rabbis read and study over and over again and that young jews in school will read and debate about and you know, we inherit all of these, these amazing stories. And, and those of us all who 
are in the Western tradition know many of these stories, right? The Exodus story of, of Moses, perhaps some of the other stories of, of the forefathers like uh, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And, you know, so just to, to respond to that quote that you offered, Chris, um, Judaism is seen to be a result of innovation of those early rabbis of needing to adapt from a people focused on this central temple and these ancient rituals and instead really become focused on on laws and you know you can you can look at the example of the way that religious Jews observe Shabbat the Sabbath there's so many laws right and that's so much the centrality of the religion today is focus on the laws on textual study on <clears throat> debate and many would argue that that despite the importance of those rituals we simultaneously have lost a connection with the earth and i think that, that again those of us in the western tradition and those of us really across the globe from every tradition have lost a connection to the earth and so my interest that, that i'm exploring in this paper is where in our tradition in our stories both you know what, what i would call the myths of of the torah but also of maybe these more recent stories of hasidic masters like where can we find experience of connection to the earth and so one example that i explore is Rabbi Nachman of Breslov was known for the practice of hitbodedut, which really is time alone outside speaking to the divine. And so, mm. you know, some, some of us, I think, who have connection to the earth can relate to that, that when we're outside, especially, you know, under trees, especially, you know, under the night sky, we can really access spirituality in a way that's very different from how we might do under a roof reading you know it's it's really different and and so just just to to wrap up sometimes when i'm at the synagogue for a shabbat service and there's a period where it's uh an individual prayer and people are reading i put my book down and maybe they're reading for five minutes or so and i just like run outside and I do my own my own prayers <laughs> under the sky. And I, I get just a minute in that service of that practice of people to do. Let me ask you one more thing about this. There's a quote here. I don't know the word and the reference that takes that even maybe a little more specifically. You, you talk about leading Hasidic mystics and their disciples uh, spent time in nature to cleave to the divine while the vast majority of the world's Jews read the stories of our ancestral figures, nomads who had numinous experiences in the wilderness, we have by and large lost the sense that we too might experience Devekut. What is Devekut? There's also this great line in your writing where you say, is it possible that our evolution towards being, quote, the people of the book has left us lacking a connection with the potential raw awesomeness of spiritual experience often occurring in the outdoors, in the wilderness. 
so yeah, so what is Devekut? Is that only available outdoors? What does that sort of mean? It is not. It's just generally understood as, you know, the, the word that I use here is cleaving. Cleaving to the divine. There's, sorry, I was just trying to try. There, there's similar words. Beautiful, it's beautiful sounding language and, and cleaving is such a powerful word. So yeah, go ahead, talk about right? that. And, you know, uh, again, I think that it's interesting to juxtapose the experience of having a tradition that is very much focused on, on prayers in a book with this concept of cleaving. Like sometimes, again, I close the book and I just hug it. Not that there's necessarily anything, you know, special about, about the book. It has prayers and so great, but it's just some, some way to kind of wrap, wrap my arms around, around myself. Right. And in terms of the this concept of nomads who had numinous experiences in the wilderness we have these stories early on in the torah of abraham being told by this divine voice and i love that shawl marcus that's that's beautiful that's i would say that's another example right sometimes i take my shawl and just wrap it around myself yeah. right um abraham is told like go and the language, it's lech lecha, the Hebrew. It sort of means like go and go to yourself. And so what he does is he leaves the land of his ancestors and he just travels. And one of the first places that he winds up, and I talk about this a little bit in the article, is um, he winds up at uh, Elon Moreh. And I learned from this, this great um, rabbi, uh, Zella Golden, who started this organization, Wilderness Torah, that I volunteered with, that oftentimes that word is translated almost always is translated as the terebinth of moreh no one knows what a terebinth is and it's just terebinth of moreh but when you translate alone moreh and if you ask a fifth grader who knows some hebrew it means teacher tree right so abraham leaves the land he grew up in he goes traveling in the wilderness and he winds up at the feet of a teacher tree at the roots and so we wonder it's not clear in the text. We wonder mm -hmm. what did Abraham do at a teacher tree, right? We similarly know the story of Moses tending his flock of sheep and just being overcome by this burning bush, right? And some would say, oh, maybe he had some kind of uh, special plant, this psychedelic <laughs> plant that exists out there. And that's how that happened. <laughs> we don't really know. But there's so many stories, and I can I can point to others as well. So many stories, these myths in the Jewish tradition, where the connection with the divine happens outside. And we talk about these myths as if that was something that happened in ancient times. As if it used to mean something. Right. And now we don't do that, right? Now we just talk about it. And so the opportunity that I'm presenting, the horizon that I think this approach brings is what could it mean to meld our spiritual traditions and the stories, the opportunities, the possibilities that they present to actually being outside. If I know that this happened to my ancestors, to the myths in my tradition, could I potentially also be able to experience divinity just because I get out there because I lech lecha. And, you know, in my experience, yes. In my experience, it really did require 
first just being outside, spending more time, you know, on my parents' balcony as a, <laughs> as a teenager and through the years on, on my own balcony or just wandering in the forest or, you know, just getting out there. And that's where the divinity happens in my experience, much more than either reading or being under a roof. Although it can happen there, Devekut can happen anywhere where we let the divine in, but the wilderness, and I'd be curious to hear how others on this call experience that too, but the wilderness, it makes it, I think, really accessible. 